Today we are starting a new series. We finished up our series last week on the Apostles' Creed and we're beginning a new series today on the book of Romans or Paul's letter to the Romans. One of the most studied, one of the best, best well-known, one that's had a great influence on the church throughout the ages, whether it's St. Augustine or Martin Luther or John Wesley. Many have read the book of Romans, this letter of Paul, and been shaped and formed by it. So we're going to be taking a look at it and learning from it and trying to grow from it. We're going to be doing it most of this fall and probably a little bit into next year. I know some churches do like two or three year long series on the book of Romans. We're not doing that, okay? Um, not sure exactly how long we'll be in Romans, but we'll be there for a little while, kind of journeying through this letter from Paul. But uh, today I want to kind of set the stage for what we're going to be studying. And this is always a challenge for me when it comes in terms of setting the stage or providing some background. And so when I think about setting the background, I think about the Lord of the Rings. You think of a Lord of the Rings. So I know many of you know that I like Star Wars. Well, one of my other nerd habits is the Lord of the Rings. And so Lord of the Rings, how many of you have read or seen the movie Lord of the Rings? So a few of you are familiar with it. So Lord of the Rings is book by J.R.R. Tolkien from the 30s and 40s, uh, made into a series of movies by Peter Jackson about 20 years ago, tells the story of these rings of power that were forged in the one ring that binds them all together in this battle between the men and the elves and the dwarves and the hobbits and Sauron, this evil. And so there's this great thing that comes together. So one of the things as you enter into a story like this, and one of the unique things about Tolkien was he was meticulous. He was a creative person. He created entire languages and scripts. So I have at home at this little book that's called the languages of Middle Earth. And it, it teaches you how to write in Dwarvish or in Elvish and, and to write things. And so when I was in high school, I was the guy who was like trying to figure out how to write in Elvish. I gave up after a while. But so there are ways to do these things. And so Tolkien created entire languages, not just a few words, but an entire grammar and alphabets. And then he created entire backstories and histories for these books that he wrote called The Hobbit and then The Lord of the Rings and eventually published other ones like The Cimmerillion and these other unfinished tales. But all these provided the background for it. So if you saw the Peter Jackson movies, uh, there begins with this prologue of Galadriel, one of the elves telling the story of the forging of the rings of power. It kind of sets the scene. If you pick up the books, there's a prologue in the book that tells a little bit about the hobbits and the rings of power, or you can go to the appendix or if you really want to know more, you can read the Cimmerillion, which is about a 400-page history of Middle-earth. Why does this all matter? Because when we come to a Bible story like this, my question is, how much background do I give you? Do I give you the little Galadriel four or five-minute little long prologue at the beginning of the movie? Or do I give you the Cimmerillion? <laughs> I try and find the middle somewhere because... Where that is, is trying to, it's like, do you need to know about the Valor and the Einar and all these? Probably not. But it's important to understand the background of what we're reading. Because when we come to our Bible, whether it's one of our books of the Old Testament or one of our letters in the New Testament, they were written at a particular time and place in history. And they were written for a reason. And so it's helpful to understand why were these things written down? What goes on behind them? And so as I begin this letter to the Romans, I want to set kind of three things that I want us to keep in the back of our minds throughout this study. One is the vocabulary, the words we use. And so again, to use Lord of the Rings, it's a story about elves and dwarves or some of the characters in it. But if you think of the Keebler elves and the dwarves from Snow White, 
you're going to go into the story with kind of a distorted picture of what that looks like. And it's the same when we read our Bible. We come, especially if we've grown up in church, we're going to hear a lot of familiar words. And if you listen to Diane as she was reading, you heard a lot of familiar churchy words. We heard about gospel and salvation and grace and apostleship and righteousness and faith. All these words that we often come to the Bible and to our study with a preconceived idea of what exactly they mean. But sometimes our idea of what they mean and what the writers of the Bible mean aren't exactly the same thing. I know that for me, I've been relearning some vocabulary over the last few years. I had ideas about what some of those, so we're going to spend some time some Sundays figuring out some of those words to say, do they really mean what we've come to bring them with? So we keep in mind vocabulary. The second thing we want to keep in mind is the big picture. That sometimes, and I joked about the three-year series in Romans, that sometimes we can get so lost on one verse or one word that we forget that it's part of a larger story. And so it's important for us to not just read a verse or two and, and try and pick that verse all apart and forget that that verse comes in a context. That a sentence comes in the context of a paragraph. The paragraph comes in the context of this larger argument. So Romans has 16 chapters. And so we've got to remember, why is this verse set in this letter from Paul? And the final thing is the background. So why did this letter come? Where did this letter come from? So I want to share just a few minutes here of where this letter, some important background for it. So I've already alluded to, it's a letter from a man named Paul. So who's Paul? Paul was a Jewish man, grew up to be a Pharisee, a religious leader, and initially was opposed to these followers of Jesus. But then because of this encounter, this experience with the risen Jesus, he becomes a follower of Jesus and then commits his life to proclaiming who Jesus is and all that Jesus has done. Not only to the people in Jerusalem, but he begins to travel throughout the Mediterranean, teaching about Jesus, starting churches, encouraging people. He does this by traveling in person and sometimes by writing letters to them. And so what we have here in Romans is one of those letters that he's written. And so he's writing to the Romans. And you want to guess where the Romans live? Rome, right? Okay. So we, we have all these letters in the end. Some questions aren't so hard, right? So this is one of those Bible questions that's a little... So he's writing to the city of Rome. Rome was the center of life in the Mediterranean. It was the capital of the Roman Empire. It was the center for culture and society. It was a center for travel. And so Paul is sending a letter to the Christians that live in Rome. Now we know a little bit about it that Paul hasn't been to Rome yet. He said that earlier on. He says, I've been trying to get there, but I haven't been able to make it. But there's the impression that he knows at least some of the people there. Because if you make it all the way through to the end of the book of Romans, you find this long list of names. Now, how many of you, is, that's like your favorite part of the Bible, our list of names? No, most of us don't. And so when we get to Romans chapter 16, if we've made it that far, and we come to this long thing, and then it says, greet Priscilla and Aquila, greet also the church, greet my friend Eponidas, greet Mary, greet Andronicus and Junia, greet Ampliatus, greet Abranus. 
my friend Stackus, and then after a while, like, okay, let's skip down, okay, and then we jump down and pass that. Well, it's important because we get the idea, Paul at least knows some people there. And one of the things we realize is as we look at that list of names, if you were to turn to chapter 16, there's one, a lot of women in the list. There are people with Jewish names. There are people with Greek names. There are people with Latin names. And so it's a diverse group of people. There are people whose names suggest they're probably slaves. And so it's this important thing. And so Scott McKnight, a professor, a theologian who teaches at Northern Seminary in the Lombard, Chicago area, he has a book called Reading Romans Backwards. And McKnight's thesis is that in order for us to understand the book of Romans, we need to read it backwards. Now, we're not going to do that. And by backwards, he means you need to go to the back of the book. You need to go to the end of Romans because at the end of the Rome, book of Romans, Paul introduces a lot of things that help us understand the first part. That help us understand the context. One is this diverse crowd of people they think about. And so I want us to think about three key things that if we start reading Romans backwards, if we look at the end of it, we learn about. First is the start of chapter 16. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Sencre. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you. For she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. And so we're introduced at the end of this letter to Phoebe. But Paul uses some unique language. He says, I commend to you, which is a language used often in the ancient context of saying, and suggesting, and many scholars believe this, that Phoebe was the one who was carrying the letter to the church in Rome. There wasn't a post office back in those days. There were no emails. The way that a letter got from one city to another was you gave it to a person and that person made the trip by land or by sea and took the letter. And so Sencre, the city that's mentioned Phoebe, is right near Corinth where we believe Paul was writing from. And so Phoebe is carrying this letter to the people in Rome. And the language of that, of I commend you, suggests that not only would a person carry the letter, but oftentimes the person carrying the letter would also be the person who reads the letter. So for example, if we are the church in Rome and we receive a letter from Paul, I don't just take it to the photocopier and run off copies to hand out to everybody. Two problems with that. One is no photocopiers in ancient Rome. Second one is a lot of the people couldn't read. And so how would it work was the person who carried the letter would come and read the letter to the people there. And by reading the letter, there's also a sense of interpretation because when we read something, the way we read, the words we emphasize, the pacing, all those things influence the way that something comes across. So we can take one of the examples I like to use of the phrase, I never said she stole my wallet. Now, we could say, I never said she stole my wallet. I never said she stole my wallet. I never said she stole my wallet. And you can see that even just sometimes in the words we emphasize. And so chances are, as Phoebe was performing or reading this letter, perhaps reciting it, she's interpreting it. And sometimes even pausing in a moment, somebody's like, could you say that again, Phoebe? I, I don't, what, what's Paul talking about? Because Paul's not there to explain, but Phoebe is. So we have Phoebe, who's a deacon, 
which in the 14 or so occurrences of that word in the New Testament is used by Paul to describe Jesus, is describe himself and describe leaders in the church. So suggest that Phoebe had a role of leadership in the church. Deacon didn't simply mean someone who set the table. And if you wonder about that, I would encourage you, look up that word deacon, find a, find a concordance and I can teach you how to use it. And that word and see every example where it's used and wonder and say, it's probably how it's used for the word Phoebe. And she's also a patron. It says she's a benefactor. In other words, she had wealth and she supported churches. So that's Phoebe. We already talked about the list of names that we probably skip over. A diverse group of people. And a diverse group of people, when you get a lot of people from different backgrounds, different ideas, different things, what tends to happen in the group? Eh, people don't always get along real well. And so if we were to page back a little more, chapters 14 and 15 talks about maybe one of the reasons Paul wrote. And it talks about these conflict between the strong and the weak. And so historically in around the year 49 AD, the emperor of Rome, Claudius, kicked all the Jewish people out of Rome. Those who were ethnically Jewish, which meant that what was left in the church were the people who were Gentiles. And Gentiles simply means the nations. In other words, non-Jewish people. Later, under Nero, the Jewish people returned to the church. So now imagine a church where you've got a people, group of people who are kind of the leaders and they all get kicked out and they have to move away for a while. Well, what do the people who are left behind do? They start taking over, don't they? They start to adapt. They start to create their own leadership. And then the people who used to be leaders come back. How do you think that goes over? There starts to be some division between the strong and the weak. And so, Again, a lot of scholars suggest that this is one of the conflicts that Paul is trying to address. So Paul's writing this letter. He's writing it in part to address this issue of conflict. So as we read through these early chapters and all this deep and rich theology, we want to keep in our mind some of what Paul is addressing with is this conflict between Jews and Gentiles, between the strong and the weak. He's also introducing himself because they don't know him. Many of them don't know him personally. And if we read in chapter 15 and 16, one of the other things Paul is doing is he plans to stop in Rome and continue his missionary journey on to Spain. Well, if you've been around churches long enough, when a missionary comes to visit, what's one of the things they usually do? Ask for money, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean we like to hear like, oh, missionaries tell great stories. But yeah, oftentimes they also want money. Well, Paul needed money to continue his journey to Spain. So part of his letter to Rome is saying, I need some help. He's also encouraging them to support the church in Jerusalem, which is going through a hard time. And so there's all these things that are going on. So that's the big, long background. That's the, that's the condensed version of the background of this letter. But one of the things that Michael Gorman, a Roman a scholar, Pauline scholar, talks about is, while it's important to understand all this stuff, why Paul wrote Romans, What's just important for us to remember is that it is scripture for us. That it's God's divine word to us. And so we don't want to get too lost in all the background. It's important for us to understand, but we don't want to get too caught up in that. But we also, without forgetting, we don't want to forget that it's something to us. That it's a letter that addresses us and that can cause us to think about our life. So we're going to go back to chapter one, verse one. And Paul says, Paul, 
a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. And so this was the typical way a letter would begin where the person writing the letter, when we write a letter, where do we put our name? The end of the letter. Ancient Near East, one of the ways they would put their letter, they would write at the beginning of the letter. They say, well, I'm introducing myself. And notice how he introduces himself. A servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle or really better language, a slave of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle. And so what Paul is saying is my life, all that I am is defined by my relationship to God. I'm a slave to Christ Jesus without getting into all the background of slavery. One of the essential things is a slave, what belongs to the master and does the bidding of the master. And so when Paul says, I'm a slave of Christ Jesus, he's saying, I belong to Jesus and I'm living my life under the commands, under the orders of Jesus. And I'm an apostle, which means a sent one. He's a messenger. And so as Paul begins to introduce himself and begins to introduce this letter, one of the things that he's saying is, this is who I am. I can tell you lots of things about myself, but the essential thing you need to know about me is I belong to Jesus, I listen to Jesus, and I'm here to tell you about Jesus. And he says he's set apart for it. He's set apart for what? The gospel of God. In other words, this isn't Paul's gospel. This isn't somebody else's, but it's the gospel that has its source in, that's created by, that's spoken by God. Now, I said earlier on in the thing that we have vocabulary that we use. So our word for today is gospel. I must think about the word gospel. So take 10 seconds and come in your mind, try and picture in your mind, someone were to come to you and ask you, tell me what the gospel is. Do you have something in your head, right? Okay, so you got an idea in your head. Now, one of the things... We're going to take that. We're going to tweak that maybe just a little bit. I don't like that word tweak, but it's the word that came to mind right now. We're going to think about that word. So one of the things that we realize is when Paul uses vocabulary, he doesn't just make things up. We come and we come to church and we hear words like gospel and faith and righteousness and salvation. And to us, those are churchy words. I mean, we don't use most of those words anywhere else. But in the ancient world, those words existed already. And what Paul did was borrow those words to tell his story. So the word gospel in Greek, euangelion, or the, so the good message. So angelion, you think of angels or messengers. And so it was a good message. The word gospel or Elion existed in the ancient world before Paul wrote down the letters. And it was used as a word to talk about good tidings or a good message, typically to describe the actions of a king or an emperor. And so there's an inscription, a letter from before the birth of Jesus, which announces the good news, the gospel, the euangelion, of the birth of Caesar Augustus. And so when Paul uses the word gospel, he's saying this is just a proclamation of good tidings. It's a proclamation of good tidings. So when Paul says, I've come to share the gospel with you, 
The gospel isn't something we decide on. The gospel isn't simply a plan of salvation. The gospel is a proclamation. And the proclamation is essentially this, that Jesus is the saving king. So Matthew Bates and Scott McKnight and N.T. Wright kind of describe it this way, that this is what we're talking about, that the gospel is the proclamation. So he goes on, he says, the gospel he promised beforehand. So this proclamation was something that has its roots in the Old Testament. And what's the gospel about regarding his son? The gospel is about Jesus, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David. In other words, he comes from the line of kings. He took on flesh and he was born. And then it goes on, and through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So what does Paul emphasize as he begins to describe what he means by the gospel? It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus who took on flesh, who became a human, who then was by his resurrection, was appointed the son of God in power. What does that mean? That when Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, he didn't just wander around earth saying, I'm back, everybody. But instead, what? God raised him up and he sits. We talked about this in the Apostles' Creed. He sits at the right hand of God, reigning over the universe. He's the son of God in power, Jesus Christ, Jesus, the Messiah, the saving one, our Lord. And so even that language implies this is the one who's ruling and reigning over all things. So Jesus, Paul is emphasizing Jesus' resurrection and loyalty. And what we think about is, why is Paul proclaiming the gospel to them if the gospel is simply a plan of salvation? Plan of salvation is part of it, but it's not all of it. To a bunch of people who already believe. He's writing to the church in Rome and he's telling them the good news of Jesus. And they're like, well, we already know that. That's why we're here in church. But we recognize that when Paul is preaching to them, when he's evangelizing them, and that's the kind of the language, the euangelion is the good news. So euangelizdo is to preach the good news. And so he's gospeling the people in Rome but what he's doing is, uh, Walter Brueggemann says it this way, he's inviting people into the scriptural stories as the definitional story of life. He's inviting them into this story and saying, this is the story that needs to define your life. And so the gospel is to say, here's the story of Jesus. It should be the defining story of your life. He's not converting them, but deepening their understanding. So as Paul's writing, this is what he's doing. And so... Michael Gorman, this scholar I mentioned earlier, says it this way. He says, the gospel is not first of all about us or me. It is about God and specifically about God's Messiah, the crucified and resurrected Lord. The gospel reveals God's love, God's kind of justice and peace, God's dream for the world. To be a beneficiary of the gospel is to be caught up into the story, the mission, and the life of God. So Paul's coming and proclaiming this proclamation. And so we learn more about it. So the first part, Romans 1, 1 through 4, he talks about the gospel. It comes back up again in 1, 16 and 17. The end of it, and many of you may be familiar with this verse. It says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed 
a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as is written, the righteous will live by faith. So next week, we'll come back to those two words, righteous and faith, because they're key meaning. But for now, notice how he describes it. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. The gospel is power. It's the power that brings salvation. It reveals and establishes God's righteousness. And so I'm going to another quote here, this one from Douglas Herring. He says, the gospel, according to Paul, is not an offer, but a power. When Paul announces the good news, he declares what has already happened and is happening. News of God resurrecting and exalting God's son by God's powerful spirit of holiness. The gospel is an announcement of a crucified, resurrected, and reigning king. So as Paul's starting this, what we need to hear is that. That this good news, this gospel is primarily, and it begins with, this is the announcement of what God is doing. And the announcement of that thing in and of itself is power, and it's God's power at work. So Paul comes and he says, I'm going to proclaim to you the gospel because what he recognizes is when you proclaim that word, when you speak about a crucified, resurrected and reigning king, that that in and of itself brings power. It comes with the power of God. Sometimes we think we have to convince people, we have to cajole people, we have to manipulate people into believing. And what Paul says is something entirely different. He says, the gospel itself is power. And it contains power and it contains what kind of power to bring life and to bring salvation. And so I want us to be thinking about, I want to encourage you to think about that this week. Think about when you hear the word gospel, what do you think about? And do you think of it as a proclamation about Jesus or is it something else? And if it's a proclamation, do you proclaim it? And do you believe that that gospel, that good news has power? Because sometimes, I know for me, I think, oh, I don't know. I'd, here's this thing and it's this story and we feel like it's this little tiny thing and we're not so sure about it and we get kind of meek and kind of crouched down a little bit. So, well, I want to tell you about Jesus. Can I, is it okay? And what Paul is saying is the gospel is power. It's the power of God at work. It's a declaration, a proclamation of that power. And so do we believe that? Do we believe that it is powerful? That this message in and of itself, not with our rhetorical skills, not with our flourish, not with our quick wit and keen sense of humor, not with all the powers that we have, but do we believe in and of itself that this message that God sent his son Jesus and that in that the righteousness, the goodness and the faithfulness, the justice of God is revealed and that it's salvation for Jews and Gentiles. In other words, it's salvation for everybody. Do we believe that that message in and of itself has power? I believe it does because I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it in the life of others that that message in and of itself has the power to change us and the power to save us. So as you consider your definition of gospel, do you believe it's power? Do you believe it's the power of God for salvation for everyone? Everyone who believes. And then maybe 
to ask yourself as we travel through the book of Romans and as we hear Paul proclaiming the gospel to the church in Rome, remembering that it's a message to us too, what about the good news? What about that gospel? What power do we need to hear in our own lives? How do I need to recover and reclaim and understand what these words mean, what faith is, what righteousness is, and most of all, what this gospel of God, what God's gospel about Jesus Christ, the resurrected and reigning king, what do I need to hear in my life? Where do I need the power of the gospel at work in my life? So spend some time with God this week. Say, God, where do I need that in my life? And where might someone else in my life need to hear about this power and this good news? Because it is good news. Ultimately, that's what we believe, that it is the good news, the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. That's what Paul wrote about to the Romans. And that's what he's inviting us to hear about. That the story of Jesus, the resurrected and reigning King, is the power of God for salvation. So may we hear it and may we proclaim it. Amen.